on your way back to your seat. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible or an excellent memory, open one of those to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to finish our series in James uh, this morning. And then next week uh, begins Advent and we'll be speaking from some Isaiah passages through Advent as we celebrate uh, the, the joy of the coming of Jesus with messages about peace, about hope, about joy, and about love. This morning, uh, on the other hand, I'm going to talk about money and possessions, about patience and endurance, about the power of God to heal and forgive in response to confession and prayer. Sometimes when I'm speaking, I'll, you know, I'll say, you need to do this, or I'll say, I need to do this. Today, I'm just going to use the word we. So this is very much a we week because it's uh, very challenging when you read through this passage. It's, I got a little laugh back there. <laughs> That's our children's pastor. She'll laugh the whole time. It's fine. <laughs> He's having fun. <laughs> and, but the reason I say that is because this, even as I speak from this, this is aspirational. I can't say that everything I'm going to say, I'm living this out perfectly. So I just felt like this was a call to all of us and a challenge. So before, before we hear the word of the Lord to us this morning, let's open our hearts to him and pray. God, here we are, your children, the ones you love, the ones you created, formed, and have redeemed through the work of Jesus. We ask, God, that these hearts that you created would be wide open to your word for, uh, for us this morning. And whether that comes through my words or this scripture or straight from heaven to the heart, we ask, Lord, that we would take it to heart and walk it out in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's a long chapter. I'm not going to put all the verses up there, so that's why I ask you to open your Bible, James chapter 5. I am going to read the first couple of verses here. They won't be all on the screen, so, um, but listen as the Lord speaks to us this morning. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. And it gets more fun than that. <laughs> your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James, <laughs> dude, <laughs> uh, just goes hard at the people that he's writing to. You know, I read this um, and I thought to myself, well, this is to rich people. So it sounds like it's to, to wealthy people who are using their goods or their position to oppress the poor. So I'm like, I, I think I might be out of this one. Maybe we can just skip to the next verse. Maybe not so fast. So I asked what, you know, we're supposed to ask when we see the scriptures. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? And so I read it and I thought, well, am I rich? So I went to Dr. Google to find out if I'm rich. U.S. News and World Report says, I'm wealthy if my net worth is $1.9 million. Whew. Not quite there yet. 
I'm in the top tax bracket if I make $600,000 a year. Here at the Vineyard, I'm just below that. <laughs> then I went to another website, uh, a little less Western, a little more global. Um, the website's actually called How Rich Am I? I put in my post-tax income and found out that I'm in the richest 2.4% of the global population. If I were to, if we were to make minimum wage, we would be in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. If we make $50,000 a year, we are in the top 0.31% of the wealthiest people in a world that just crossed last week 8 billion people. We're the wealthy ones. So it's really hard to look at James and say, oh, that's for someone else. I think it's for us. I think we need to come to terms with our wealth and be willing to ask ourselves and God some hard questions. And the questions that are prompted from the scripture are, are my resources going to waste? Are my, res my, are my resources corroding? Am I, am I wasting what God's given to me? Have we lived in luxury and self-indulgence? Let's just ask God the question, do we live in luxury and self-indulgence. Praise God, I am not the one to judge your lifestyle. But we need to be honest, there is a judge. And he is the one who both knows your heart and who has provided everything that we have. So we don't stand before this judge afraid. We stand before this judge in awe and in gratitude for what he's done. And then look to him and say, what do I do with what I've been given? I think that's the question that's prompted from the scripture. Do we know the difference between need and want? You know how you try to teach that to your children? The question is, have we ever learned it? The difference between need and want. In other places in the New Testament, the wealthy are not condemned. I'm not sure that James is meaning to condemn the wealthy. He's pressing them. He's egging them on. If they're living by unjust means, then obviously he's speaking the prophetic truth to them. But when Paul writes about wealthy people in 1 Timothy 6, he, he doesn't condemn them. He says this, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10 and following. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Make sure you get this part as I come down hard. For our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. So Paul challenges the wealthy. No, Paul commands the wealthy. He says, command the wealthy to be rich in good deeds, to be willing to share, to be generous, and not put your trust in what you have, but you put your trust in the one who gave you all that you have. That's the word of the Lord. That's for us in Western society. It's, it's for everyone who, who hears this message. Only the Holy Spirit can tell us how this applies to us personally. But in order to know what God wants us to do with what we've been given, what I know for sure is we will have to pray and we will have to wait and we will have to listen and then we will have to actually obey because 
you know, for the, for the, the Jewish people hearing this message, to hear was to obey. If they didn't obey, they couldn't say they'd heard. That's how God works. There, I had a friend years ago, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he uh, sponsored a ministry in uh, a part of the world that was really challenging um, and economically challenging. And he used to say, we live simply so that others may simply live. And I'll tell you, it got, it got me every time. We live simply so that others may simply live. Don't take condemnation from that. Just take an invitation from the Lord. Lord, is there any way or place in me that you're calling and inviting me to simplify so that others might have life? I'm going to read uh, from another pastor's sermon. This is from Basil the Great, 4th century. He doesn't have a podcast or anything. Um, and you'll see why in a minute. Basil the Great, 4th century, uh, was a bishop in what is now modern Turkey. And this is what he says. The bread you are holding back is for the hungry. The clothes you keep put away are for the naked. The shoes that are rotting away with disuse are for those who have none. The silver you keep buried in the earth is for the needy. You are thus guilty of injustice toward as many as you might have aided and did not. Someone from our century, <laughs> skipping forward a few hundred years, said this, What people have more reason to sacrifice materially for the good of others than those whose leader sacrificed everything for them, making them rich by his own poverty, who identified himself with the hungry and the thirsty and the naked, whose first followers sold their possessions so that there would be none in need. Will we talk to God about our principles and our priorities and our wealth and our resources? Will we just say, God, I don't want to hear that message? <laughs> kind of like, I don't really want to hear this message. But this is God's word to us today at this time. The bottom line, we need to talk to God about the stewardship of what he has allowed us to have. And stewardship implies that we're caring for something that belongs to another which is a true biblical view of all that we have, right? Everything we have comes from God. God owns it all. And uh, 1 Chronicles 29, I love the scripture. It says, when we give, we actually give out of God's hands. Not that we're stealing from God. That makes it sound like steal it from him. And, no, not that we're stealing from God, but that God's provision is right here and we are in his hands too. And so when we give, we, we give as a blessing from the hands of God himself. We get to be Vehicles and vessels of mercy. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11. Paul's writing again and he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness so that you'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's a great thanksgiving verse, isn't it? To remember that God will give us enough to give and that when we give, we can trust him to provide for us what we need. I have a good friend. He, he features uh, often in sermons over the last 20 years. Some, many of you have heard about me call my, talk about my friend Rusty, who is a real human, I promise. He's not a made-up person. 
Rusty has um, the gift of faith, and so God provides for him in miraculous ways. I mean miraculous ways. The, the guy's a missionary. He's an intercessory missionary. He doesn't have a lot of money, but people and God just give him things. And he learned long ago, and it really touched me when he first told me. He said, e- even now, when I get a gift that I'm not expecting, whether it's $10, $50, or a Mercedes, which he did receive a few years back, or a house, or a trip, he says, I look at this scripture, and I just ask God one question. Is this bread to eat or seed to sow? Is this bread to eat or seed to sow? Is this supposed to sustain me? Thank you, God. I so appreciate it. I love it. Or am I supposed to take this that you've given as you provide also seed for the sower and I go give this away? I mean, it's, it's joyful for him when he gets to say, hey, I didn't earn this or expect it, but it came from God. And guess what? I decided to give it to you because that's how God feels about you. When we give, we give out of only what God has provided for us. So can we ask God this morning, is there anything in God's hand under my stewardship that needs to be given away in order to help bring justice or care in the world, in the church, in my neighborhood, in my family? Um, I, I wasn't going to read this this morning before about 20 minutes ago, but here I am going to read it. I was reading this last week um, an article in a magazine. I actually get one magazine. You know, I don't know if anyone else ever gets a magazine anymore, but one comes to my house and I open it up and read it. Um, it's from a, a Mennonite in background, so it's they're they're um, they're God-loving, justice-seeking uh, people, and this is an article written by an American man who was in the Netherlands at a conference on uh, world justice, and he was speaking, having lunch actually, with an, an African bishop. Um, from uh, Uganda, who had served in the, um, the Anglican Church of Uganda. Actually, he said he was going to have lunch, and so he brought all this food out, all this, um, and when the, um, when the bishop showed up, the bishop said, oh, I don't eat lunch. He said, as long as the, the children in Uganda don't have lunch when they're at school, when they should be eating lunch and they're not, I don't either. So they were talking about the kingdom and I'm just, I'm just going to read this. Just take it in. I'll, I'll, I'll post this uh, um, connection to this, a link to this on the website. But just hear the joy and the passion of this African bishop. So what, I asked him, is the kingdom. And he said it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans 14. That means that God's kingdom is wherever a community is doing justice where people are reconciled, and where people are one in joy. Which is very different from saying that the kingdom amounts to a fair and just world. That would simply be liberal. He said, and that's not what I mean. Paul adds something. In the Holy Spirit, any form of justice that does not rely on God eventually becomes paternalistic and oppressive. It cannot be done without God. He goes on to say, we all tend to feel comfortable with people from our own social class. Also in church, that's obvious, but what we can do. And the bishop says, get out there. Don't wait for poor people to come to church. Go out and look for them in their own environment. Go and visit Muslims in their own environment. The Holy Spirit always pushes us out of the center, toward the margins and the people who are less privileged. 
And that way people come together. All you need to be able to do is to let yourself be touched. And then you will find real joy, joy from God. It says, this is also the way of Jesus. He took part in our suffering in order to break injustice. The cross is the ultimate laying down of every power and every privilege. So the man, his name is Frank, who was, who's writing this, he said, as he spoke, I thought, but after this suffering, what we see in the world, we should take action, obviously. We have to use our privileged position, our brains and our money, to help poor people, right? Nirinje, the bishop, shook his head with a sad face. How condescending. He said, help poor people? Who's the one who needs help here? It's you. Poverty is not the problem. Greed is the problem. People don't need projects. They need you. A human choosing their side, taking their place. If you're not willing to do that, you're not credible. The bishop laughed. Jesus came among us. He is God with us. Not a remote God transferring money to us. You're used to your money, to your computers. You too need liberation. And this you will find only where rich and poor meet in the spirit. In fact, poor people don't need you. He said with a grin on his face, you need the poor. Don't take that to justify, oh, they don't need me. (laughs) Clearly that is not the point. The point is we have gotten attached to what we have. And to truly be the people of God to, to be rich in mercy and in good deeds, we need to attach ourselves first and foremost to God and to the kingdom and then let the king tell us what he wants to do with his stuff, what he, what he wants us to do with his time, what he wants to do with his talents and his gifts and his treasures. Because James is, is saying, hey, it's hard out there, but God wants to use you in the world. My second point Starting in verse 7. I'm just going to read a a couple of the commands here. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. Well, that's easy, right? Who's got patience? The gift of anyone? Nobody. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. You too, he says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Because the king is about to come and reconcile everything. He's about to redeem all of humanity. So he says, you know, when later in the Gospels, uh, Jesus will say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I don't think it says this in the Greek, but I think, or will he just find a bunch of whiners? No, he wants to find faith. He wants to find people saying, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to endure. I'm going to wait because the Lord's coming is soon. It's near. And then he gives some examples of Job's patience. Uh, Who really wants to be compared to Job very often? I mean, it's a tough book to go through. It gets good in the end, like in the last two verses. Sorry, it's only 40 chapters. So in verse 11, James says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's kind of the underpinning. The motivation to be patient and to endure is Jesus is coming soon and remember his character. Remember who he is. He's full of compassion and he's full of mercy. 
James is saying, he's coming soon. He's already in you. Now, what will it look like for you to live like Jesus, full of compassion and full of mercy? These words that James uses, patient, patient, uh, other ways to look at that, to persevere bravely, to not lose heart. I love Heidi Baker. She says, if you don't quit, you win. It's so helpful when you're just about to say, you know, I'm done with this. God, haven't I endured enough? Has anyone ever prayed these prayers? God, I'm just, are you kidding me? That's a, that's a true prayer to God. Are you kidding me? To persevere bravely. Patience in bearing the offenses of others. So in other words, not just patience, James says, in waiting for Jesus to come and do his reconciling work in the world, but patience with us, you know, those people, the ones you live with or you're married to, those people, patience in bearing with the offenses of others. And then he says, stand firm. Literally, the phrase is, strengthen your heart. That's the literal phrase. He says, so be patient and strengthen your heart or let your heart be strengthened. Let your heart be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. How else can we really be patient and endure and live with mercy and compassion? It's only if we're rooted in the love of Jesus. I mean, if we don't really get what Jesus has done for us and live in the reality of our acceptance in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6, if we don't know how bad it was for us because of our sin, or where we were headed before we met Jesus, it's going to be hard for us to be patient in the moment. But when we think on the other side of this, in a day or a month or a decade or a century, then Jesus comes and eternity never ends. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, be patient, persevere, and stand firm. Let your heart be rooted and grounded in the love of God, living with and from the whole hope of eternity. I think what James is telling us through this is to have a heart posture of humility towards God and others. Just to be, to, to recognize where we are in the world. Not just what we have, but where we stand at this kind of precipice of history. Must have been 60s, 70s, you know, when I was like three years old or something, but Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, uh, and he, he wrote the book to talk about what should the church do in spite when we see what's happening in the culture. So sexual revolution of the 60s and all the stuff happening in the 70s. And the name of the book was How Then Should We Live? In other words, if here's who we are in Christ and here's what the world is like, how then should we live? And you might expect him to say, we got to get out of there. He says, no, we've got to engage it. We've got to be there. And so he says, what we really need to do is live out the, 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 the ethic of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, where we started in James, you know, we were, Adam was helping us understand how closely his talk is, his speech is like to the Sermon on the Mount. And Brian last week helping, helping us see that some of those same themes are right here. So what do we do if the culture's caving in on us and doing a bunch of things we don't like and being mean to us and blah, 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 blah? We live like Jesus. We love like Jesus. We give and sacrifice like Jesus. We forgive like Jesus. We, we ask God the question, what does my life look like from heaven's perspective? It's so easy to look at our lives and say, we got all these horrible things and it's so difficult. And, 
but from heaven's perspective, really. Not to bring guilt, but perspective. What is it that God's inviting us into? Then at the end of that that particular passage, um, James says, don't grumble against one another. The, the word, I got a little nerdy on this one. The, the word for grumble, it's a Greek word that's only used six times in the New Testament. And it normally means just to sigh or to groan. So can you imagine like, oh, you know, have you ever heard that one? Have you ever done that one in the last five minutes? You know, oh. He's saying don't do that to one another. This is the only place that that word is used negatively. Every other place in the New Testament, it's talking about the way our spirits groan for the coming of the kingdom or how we wait patiently for the, you know, the, the, um, the reconciliation of the world. Almost in every other place, it's like this groan is a, a longing groan. But here, James use it, uses it and says, don't, ah, uh, to people. And I, I looked at that for a while. I thought, the only way I can understand that is that James is saying, when we're dealing with people who are imperfect, a.k.a. every other human in the world, when we're dealing with people who are imperfect, I think what he's saying is, don't, I'm going to pick on Nick. It's a Nick pick. Pick on Nick. <laughs> no, it's kind of funny. Don't look at Nick. You know, Nick is, is going along in his life and he's maybe struggling in places of immaturity somewhere, like all of us. Don't look at him and say, Ugh, are you kidding me? You did it again? Because Nick's not perfected just yet. Nick's not in heaven. Nick's fully justified and right with God. He's perfectly clean in, in Jesus' sight, but he's still on the way in his sanctification, right? So I think James is saying, don't grumble with one another. In other words, don't heap expectation on broken people and then get frustrated when they turn out to be humans. Think that, I think that's what James is saying. In other words, let's love one another. Let's forgive one another the way Jesus forgave us on the cross. By the way, how did Jesus love us on the cross? While we were still sinners. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To verse 13. Now we get to the charismatic vineyard part of the message. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then James goes on to bring the example of Elijah. And he talks about how Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed, for three and a, he prayed that there wouldn't be rain and there was no rain for three and a half years. And then he prays again and the Lord sends rain. So, James is saying, now turning to the experiences of our lives, not just our wealth and our privilege and what we do with that in terms of justice and the poor, not just in how we deal with other people or our own posture before God, but now James is saying, turn to the very experiences of your life. Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. Are you needy? Pray. Are you tired? Pray. 
It's, I think it's clear James is saying whatever situation in life you're in, the answer is pray. I think that's what he's saying. All along in the chapter, I think that's what he's saying is we've got to talk to God about what we have. We've got to talk to God about how we deal with people and ourselves. We've got to talk to God about all the situations in life. If you're sick, pray. If you're, if you're worshiping and joyful, pray. In Luke 18, we won't turn there, but in Luke 18, Jesus is just about to go through a part of his teaching where he's telling his disciples about, just, just look at the flow here, about wealth, about a humble posture towards God and man, about patient endurance in life, and waiting for the kingdom, and he's just about to heal a blind beggar. Basically, what happens in Luke 18 is mirrored in James 5. It's the same issues that he's talking about. And this is how Luke introduces that teaching of Jesus. Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Isn't it good to know, like if you, if you wonder, am I doing the right thing in any situation? When you pray, you can always know it's the right thing. We should always pray and not give up. Then James gives the example of Elijah who prayed. Remember Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 18, prophets on Mount Carmel, calls down fire from heaven. Pretty spectacular. A lot of people die in the end. He doesn't. He's an amazing man of God, right? And, 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 um, and then James says, we're just like Elijah. And my first thought was, just like Elijah? You mean depressed? Whining, suicidal, despairing, full of self-pity? Because that's what Elijah's doing in 1 Kings 19. After the glory comes the other stuff. I think James is saying, no, not so much just like him in that way, (laughs) but maybe more like him in that we too are chosen and loved and anointed with power and endowed with a destiny. Maybe James brings up Elijah Because we can see that Elijah was a whiner like we are sometimes and still anointed by God to to see the kingdom of God come. And all of that is to say, you know what we ought to do? Pray. Because, not just because we're just like Elijah, but our God and Elijah's God is one and the same. The one who used the whiner to bring down the bad guys is the same one who loves us and will use us in our lives of prayer. God's power is released in response to prayer expressed by people. God's power is released over and over and over again in response to prayer from God's people. And that's why we at the Vineyard, we basically default to prayer. I mean, it's basically our, it's like our big thing (laughs) because we know and we've seen and believe what God can do in response to faithful prayer. It's why we pray for 40 days during Lent in a prayer room. It's why we'll do a prayer conference. It's why Sean and her team prays for people at the Missional Food Pantry. It's why um, Heather and her team will pray with the kids, and Nick and Lindy with their teams will pray for the youth. It's why we'll pray for married couples and families in love after marriage. It's why we'll pray on the ministry team right up here in about four minutes. 
It's why we pray in small groups and why we confess our sins to one another and pray for each other in, in the men's community, in Jesus and Java for the women's community. It's why we have healing rooms. It's why we do sozo prayer. It's why we worship and, and pray and um, minister to each other on Sunday mornings. It's why we have an urgent prayer request where you can text if I've got something needed. You know Dale Tra- Crabtree is going to be there and he's going to text that thing out and there are going to be people praying. It's why Tammy has a, a, a group of people, David's Army, who are faithfully praying for the church and for one another every day of every month, forever and ever, amen. Because we're a people that believe that prayer has impact. We're called, commanded, and privileged to come to God who's all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful. And I'll close here. In that same passage in Luke 18, at the very end of part of his teaching, Jesus speaks to, to the despair of the disciples. He's just given them a hard word, and the disciples say, well, gee, who can be saved? And Jesus answers with this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, pray. So let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit in the midst of us. We ask, Lord, that you give us grace, faith, to come to you and talk about our wealth and resources and about justice, to talk to you about our our patience and our endurance you, God, would strengthen our hearts in God's love. Lord, let us sing our prayers to you in worship, confess our sins to one another, and be honest about our brokenness so that we might be healed. We ask, Lord, that you send us from this place this morning encouraged by our privilege to connect with the God of the universe. If I could have the ministry team come forward, that would be great. If you're on the ministry team, just come forward. And if you uh, want someone to pray for you this morning, and if you're sick, then ask someone to come and pray for you. If you're sad, have someone come and pray for you. If you're happy, <laughs> if you rejoice, come up here and start singing. If you have a need for discernment, if, if you're convicted and invited by God to do something with what God's given you, whether it's physical resources, uh, gifts, talents, whatever, we just ask you to come and pray. So Lord, I ask that you would uh, anoint us now to be your people and to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, would you send us into the world knowing that the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy is right in the midst of us and longing to be expressed out in a world that so needs it pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like someone to pray for you, please come forward. Otherwise, chat with your friends, pray for each other. Have a great day. During the service, we got a word um, for ministry time that I think would be really helpful. Um, We feel like the Lord wants to minister to any artist, 
here. Um, the word was that some of the artists have been injured, um, injured maybe even by people in the body or people that were meant to encourage you. And um, kind of like an eagle, God wants to heal that wing. I think God just has something for artists. So if you're here and you consider yourself an artist, um, God wants to heal the wing. He wants to heal your heart from the injury. Um, and then he can take you to where you're longing to go. So. Yeah, so if you, if that word resonates with you, if you'll come right here to the front. So artists right here. All the artists right here in the front, we'd love to pray for you. God longs to bring deep healing.